But it is great to be with you. Uh, we're thrilled that you're with us. If it's your first or second time, uh, my name is Steve. I'm going to get the opportunity to speak to you at all of our campuses. If you've never been to church before, uh, Journey Church is one church that meets in, in four locations. And so uh, we, we are excited, whether you're in Plymouth Meeting, Limerick, Royersford, or here. If it's your first or second time, we're excited. If you've been here before and you're back for the 10th time or you've been coming for 10 years, we're glad that you're here as well. I consider it a privilege and an honor to preach from God's Word. It's the greatest joy of my life, and so I'm going to do the best that I can to allow you to hear clearly what God wants to speak to you today. We're ending our sermon series uh, that we started a month ago in response to the, the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. We called it The God of the Underdogs, and I just told you, I said, there's this, this theme of the underdog it runs rampant in Scripture. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series called Mind Over Matter, and we're going to talk about the battle that's going on in your mind. Oftentimes, we, we say stuff like, what's the matter with me? And we'll talk about, you know, something I've dealt with, someone who said something to me. That's what my problem is. And I'm going to kind of walk you through Scripture and show you that your actual problem is often your perspective, your bitterness, your resentment, your unforgiveness. You have the power to overcome those things through Jesus. And there's actually a battle going on in your mind. And so we're going to take a look uh, in Scripture how to handle that, how to gain, gain victory in areas of our life where it feels like we've been defeated by outside situations. And so, but today I want to end our sermon series and we talked about a few different topics. If you haven't been here for the last month, we, we, we took a look at a lady named Esther. And I said, listen, we're going to talk about what it looks like when your odds seem really slim. When it looks like, man, you have a lot of things going against you uh, in, in order to be used by God. And so we took a look at Esther two weeks ago. We took a look at the story of Jacob. And we, we talked about our past. And I said, some of you have a past. And so we're going to talk about what does it look like when it feels like your past is too bad for, for, for God to use. And so we took a look at the story of Jacob. Last week, we, we jumped into his son's story, Joseph, and the title of our message was when I don't have the right connections, when it feels like I, I don't know the right people to do the right things. And so today, I want to talk to you about your potential. And the title of my message is Nobody Recognizes My Potential. Nobody Recognizes My Potential. I don't know if you've ever been there before, and I would say all of us have stories like that. Where, where there's things that you want to do, uh, and, and it feels like almost like you get overlooked, whether it's a, a job that you think you could do, whether it's a person that maybe you tried to pursue and date, and it feels like they didn't see your potential, or uh, whether it's a family member who kind of had really low expectations for you, or maybe you can remember, and I, I don't know that these teachers actually exist, but I've, I've heard from time to time that there's actually teachers that will tell a student you know, you don't really have a lot of potential. You should probably, you know, give this up. And maybe, maybe you have a real life story of an interaction with a teacher who just kind of said hurtful things to you. Maybe it was a job that you thought you should have got. But I think all of us have moments in our lives when it feels like there's people that we think should see our potential and they don't. They overlook us. I, just so you kind of understand where I'm at, I've had experiences like this in my life multiple times. Just to kind of go back, there's some situations in my life that, that I know impacted me, and, and maybe, you know, oftentimes what I've noticed is they seem really miniature and minute to people that other than you, because you'll say things like, well, this happened, you're like, okay, big deal, but to us, when these things happen, they're often devastating. They often affect everything about your life. I grew up in Boyertown. If you grew up in Boyertown, there's a couple things that, that you know about Boyertown. I've, I've joked with you before. There's only diners and pizza shops to eat in Boyertown. Uh, but the one thing about Boyertown that I think is, is amazing is everybody there loves baseball, right? Like baseball is the American pastime. And I'm not sure if this is still the truth, but when I grew up, 
you played baseball if you lived in Boyertown. Like you, you, you started when you were five, you played all the way up, and your dream was the one thing that made Boyertown famous is they had the Boyertown Legion Bears. You guys, if you're from Boyertown, you remember this? And they won all the time. I remember growing up and they won the World Series sometime when I, I think was seven. They won it again when I was around 10 years old. And so I, I distinctly remember they won the World Series the same year that Kirby Puckett and the Twins won the World Series. And if you're not old like me, you're like, who was Kirby Puckett? Google him. And so like, I remember all this. And so my dreams as a kid where I wanted to grow up, I wanted to, this seems really dumb to talk about this, and I wanted to be on the, 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 the Legion team, and I wanted to play under the lights, and I wanted to wear the, the, the B on my head, and I, and I had all these dreams, and I played, I played baseball all the way up, and if you grew up in Boyertown, you know it's a very political kind of base thing, and so if your dad coaches, and oftentimes you'll have a chance to kind of play on the all-star teams and, uh, and, and, and travel teams, and you know, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, just set the story up. Some of you are like, just get to the point of the story. This hurt me. I'm, <laughs> I'm burying my soul to you, and you're like looking at me like I'm an idiot. This is why... Nobody recognizes my potential. And so I wanted to play on the Bears. So all, all growing up, I, 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 was, I, I excelled. I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player, but I excelled. My dad wasn't a coach. He was a pastor. He really never played baseball. But for some reason, I excelled at baseball, and, and I, I enjoyed it and made all-star teams and traveling teams all the way up. And then I had some issues in my life. Uh, in the age of between 12 and 13, I started getting in trouble and doing some things that I shouldn't be doing and stealing from Dorney Park, whole nother, another story. My parents, in response to that, took me out, put me in a private school. And up to that point, I had played with the same kids and been on the same teams. And so the year I was supposed to go out for the Junior Legion team, it was beginning, the Grizzlies, right? I went out for practice. I was going to a different school at that point. Went out for practice with many of the same kids that I had played with. A lot of them I was better than, and I didn't even make it past the first cuts. And it, some of you are like, once again, well, this is a dumb story. You couldn't think of anything else. But it devastated my spirit. Like literally for the rest of my life, there was things that I would try out for and I would go, it was the first time in my life that I had been cut from something. Like it was the first time, and I know that happens and it's actually a good, a good situation for you to feel pain and you get better. But to a 13-year-old boy who was, had their eyes on, on baseball, I'm going to play for the Bears, do all these great things, be, be, be a state champion like everybody else, it was devastating to, to my spirit, to the point where I just never played baseball again. Like, it just completely stripped me of my love. I could not imagine how something good could come for that. I felt overlooked, just to be a little bit more serious. Maybe some of you go, there's been other times in my life where I thought I was going to get a job or a promotion or, or a different position. And I can tell you about times as an adult where I felt like I got overlooked. Like, I did everything I was supposed to to do it. My very first job in my very first church, there was a position that I wanted, that, that I kind of had been there for a couple years, and I wanted the position, and instead the pastor gave the position to his son. You ever been there? And I felt over, I'm like, what? And he came in, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, and I hope he doesn't watch this ever, but I was way more talented and qualified for that position. I had been with the kids that he was coming in to pastor for years, and I felt like it was, a, it, was a, it was an overlooking. I felt like I got done wrong, and it stripped me of some, some confidence. And I'm like, why don't you see? Why don't you see my potential? So I want to talk to you about that today because I think a lot of us can struggle with this. And here's what you need to understand. If Satan can get you to feel overlooked, he can negatively impact your entire outlook on life. If he can get you to develop these overlooked feelings, he can negatively impact your entire outlook on life. And so what I'm going to do is I want to take you into a story about a young boy named David in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
Maybe you're not a church person. David is a pretty prominent person in Scripture. If you've never been to Sunday school before, you don't even know what Sunday school is, maybe you don't, there was this time where they would have church, but before church they would have a class and you would learn all the Bible stories. And so uh, I remember when I was a kid, they did it on a flannel board. And so David was famous for killing a giant, right? You guys, you guys with me? You remember that story? He killed Goliath. He became the king. He played a harp. He made that look cool. I don't know how manly you have to do to make a harp look cool, but he made... That looked cool. He, he also had some great fail, failures in his life, and we kind of talked about this a few years ago. We did a sermon series called Ripple Effect, and he did some really dumb things in his life, but he's a pretty prominent figure, but his life starts out uh, kind of out of the shed, the spotlight, unknown, the youngest of all, all the, 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 the siblings. Like he, he doesn't have a, a lot of people in his corner saying, man, you have great potential. He, he's, he's, he's kind of in, him, in a position. He's going to kind of be in that position for the rest of his life, but God has other plans for him. And so I want to show you this story in the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Jewish people, the Israelites, they have their first king. His name is Saul. Saul gets cocky. He stops listening and fully obeying God. And the Bible says that God says, okay, you are no longer going to be the king. The anointing that I put on you will no longer be on you. And he goes to Samuel, who's the prophet, and he says, I want you to go here. We're going to anoint our next king. So that's kind of where we're at in Scripture. In verse number one, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How, how can I go? If Saul hears about it. He'll, he'll kill me. But the Bible says that the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do next. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. This was a big deal. This was, one of the, this was like the, the most famous prophet in the land showing up in your hometown. And you don't know if he has good news or bad news. Like you don't, you don't know, really know what to do. This is a big deal, and I want to show you kind of what Scripture says. It says, they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves. That's a Bible word for just says, get ready. Get ready yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, I love this part. So he, he sees the oldest. You can just leave it up for a second. He sees the oldest son and he assumes that's our next king. Look at him. He's fine. Samuel feels his arms. He's like, they're muscly, right? He looks like he got a square jawline. He has a good hairline. That must be my king. You ever been there? That must be the next king. And he's doing this because Saul was also a good-looking dude. The Bible says Saul stood tall. That rhymes. That was good. Saul stood tall. He was good-looking. He, he looked like a king. So Samuel's just doing what, what, what Samuel done. I guess Eliab is the next king. But I love, what, I love what the Bible story says. It says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. Watch what the Bible says, though. But the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outside, but the Lord, he sees something different. Then Jesse called Abinadab, Abinadab, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen that one either. Jesse then had Shema, Shema, Shemama, right? Pass by. But Samuel said, 
nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So put, put that down for a second. Every one of his good sons passes by. You'll notice there's no mention of David. Hey, the most popular, profound, famous prophet in the time of our day unexpectedly shows up at our house to anoint the next king. Go get your sons. And he gets seven of them. And he passes through. Yet there's no mention of David anyway. You see, he, Jesse and Samuel... And everybody else there is doing the exact same thing we did. You ever done this? You see somebody that you think you're going to like based on the way that they're dressed? You go, they look cool. This happened to me in college. I moved from my dorm in Davis, which was an all-guys dorm, moved to another dorm called, uh, I don't even remember the name of it, but it was a guy-girl girl dorm. And so I moved out of Davis where all my friends were at because I, I, I wanted to meet a wife. And so I figured I should get closer to the females because I'm only with guys. This isn't working out too well. So I moved in to this dorm. And, you know, there was girls and guys that kind of lived on separate halls. It was a Christian college. Get your mind out of the, the gutter. And so we lived on separate halls. We would pass by each other in the lobby. So I lived in this hallway, and there were some guys there that I thought were super cool, and I had judged them before I met them, and I thought, I should hang out with them, because all the girls liked these guys, and, and they dress in Abercrombie, and if you don't know what Abercrombie, that was cool when I was in, and they would take their, 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 their shirt, and they would tuck it into the front of their pants, and some of you still do that. That has not been cool since 2002, and they were real big belt buckles, and I thought, man, they're cool. They would roll their shirts up, and they would pop their collars, and then for some of them, they got super, super cool. They would wear double popped collars, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> And I, I thought I need to hang out with them because all the pretty girls like them. So I befriended them and quickly I figured out these guys are not cool at all. In fact, some of the most insecure, like they, like they would sit in the room and they would talk about how nobody liked them and they were so ugly and all this other stuff. And then they would fish for comic. Like, what is wrong with you guys? And so as soon as I could get out of there, I moved back to Davis. And Davis Hall was filled with some of the most, you know, gnarly looking dudes you can imagine. Bathing was optional. You know, clothes, the, clothes, the, 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 like the style of dress was just, everybody in that dorm were flip-flops, right? We'd, nobody put on shoes. Like, we were just kind of a ragtag bunch of people. But why, why I like them and why I kind of misjudge them, they were very secure in themselves. Like, they, they were just, it did, they weren't worried about if people were watching them. And weirdly enough, many of them got found wives and got married. Many of them married girls outside of the range, you know what I'm saying? Because we figured out, and maybe you need to jot this down, is girls oftentimes don't like the insecure, good-looking guy. They like the one who's not quite as good-looking, but secure in himself and just ready to have a good time. That's why I married Leah, obviously, right? <laughs> I married way out of my, of my, of my league, and so I, I've done this in my life where I've looked at people I'm like, oh, I like you because you look cool and you kind of, you know, you walk cool and you play cool. And then you meet him and you're like, I don't like you at all. You are a dork. And then you meet the other person. And, and I know you're not supposed to call anybody dork, but it's, it's true. You meet the other person and you're like, you look like a dork, right? You look like somebody who doesn't care. You meet him and you're like, I like you. Can we, do we just become best friends? Like it just happened. This is what's going on in the story. They're looking at, he's going, man, you know. The dab dude, he's he looking good. Like, they're going to write a song about him in 2,000 years. And, and, and Shamama over here, man, that's, that's, that you look. And he, he's going, no, no, none of these people. And so the Bible says in the next part in verse number 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all of your sons? Because if they are, we got a problem. And, and here's what Jesse says. He says, no, they're still the youngest. The Hebrew word for youngest right there is katan. It means runt. I got the runt. I got the no one. I got the youngest. 
I got the one in the, in the field. I got, I got my katan. Some of you have been there before. Somebody's looked at you and said, you're just the katan. But here's the thing about God. The rump becomes the ruler. God doesn't look at the same things the world looks at. The Bible says, no, there's still the youngest, Jesse answered him. He's out tending sheep. He's doing a job nobody else wants to do, the only job that he's qualified to do. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he, he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought, and he was growing, glowing in health and had fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And then Samuel went back to Ramah. What a beautiful moment. No, that's not the one I want. No, that's not the one I want. No, that. Do you have any more? Yeah, I got the rattan, the runt. You're not going to like him. He's little. He's younger. He's doing the job nobody else wants to do. And God says, that's, that's my man. You see, if Satan can get you to feel overlooked, guess what happens? He can affect your entire outlook. And here's what I found out in my life, that oftentimes we give people way too much power and influence in our lives. And I want to show you that today. I want to show you the three different ways you can respond to being what I would call overlooked to, to your, your, your family. You've got to understand David's part. I mean, he didn't even, imagine him coming in. He's like coming in, he's whistling, he's coming in to get a sandwich, goes over to the, the refrigerator. They didn't have those back then, but in my story, refrigerator, he's about to make a sandwich and he's coming down. And one of his brothers said, hey, Samuel was here. You didn't even get invited. I mean, how much did his dad have to aid him to not invite him to that? Think about the most famous guy in the world or girl in the world that you can think about that accidentally breaks down in front of your house and they come in for help and your parents decide to entertain them and your brothers and your sisters and your auntie and your grandma and your grandparents are there and they have a party and your parents don't even think to invite you because you're so, you know, your, your potential is so limited. The outlook for your life is so insignificant. When they say they come to anoint a king, you're like, there's no way he's going to be the king. He's the rattan. I mean, think about it from David's point of view. How insecure could have he been? How angry could have he been? How bitter could have he become? And I want to show you because many of you are in this area where you're struggling. There's people that have overlooked you and you, you've responded in ways that I think are keeping you locked up as a prisoner. So I want to give you three of those. Number one is this, is you can struggle the rest of your life with others' disapproval. The first thing you can do in your life is you can struggle the rest of your life with others' disapproval. You begin to not only hear their disapproval, but you begin to allow it to hamper you. Not only do you hear it, but you allow it to begin to hamper your life. I want to show you what the Bible says in, Psalm, in Proverbs 29. Watch what it says. It says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is what? Is kept safe. I've used this scripture to teach you this principle before, but what, what the guy's telling us is he's using a fishing term, and, and he, what, what, what he's saying is that snare represents the hook, and it's like somebody has hooked your mouth, and everywhere you go, you're being led around by, by a hook, and you won't attempt things, and you won't try things, and you won't say things, and you won't sign up for things, and you won't ask certain people things, and you won't do certain things because you are living your life hampered or being snared and pulled along by a disapproval that you've received, by a word of somebody saying, you're not good enough, you can't do that, you're just the Latan, the, 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 the runt, you're, you have no potential, your job is just to be the shepherd, if I line you up on the wall, you're the last pick. I'll take you on my team, but that's because the cone isn't moving. 
Like in many of you, you struggle in your life, and some of you don't even recognize it. Can I just give you a couple ways you can see that? Because I've struggled with, with, with this. You kind of struggle with other people's disapproval. And as I read these for you, i got to be honest with you, I struggle heavily with the first three. The last one I've, I've worked my way kind of through, and I'm kind of working my way backward over the list. But here's how you know you struggle with other people's disapproval. You ready? You're a perfectionist, and you always put yourself under pressure to do better. I'm a big fan of being great. I'm a big fan of getting better. I'm a big fan of self-improvement. But a lot of us in this room, myself included, our motivation to be a perfectionist is set on somebody else's expectations of us. We work really hard to be great because somebody disapproved at us at some point and we struggle with their, their disapproval. Here's another one. You avoid undertaking anything you might fail at. This happens in our lives when it comes to, to, to our kids. This is why, you know, my greatest struggle sometimes is, is just not being patient with my kids and speaking to them when they mess up. You ever, your kids ever spill something, you're like, what are you doing? And then you realize really quickly that they're kids and they're going to spill stuff. And, and even when you teach them a million times, they're going to spill it uh, uh, again. But oftentimes when you grow up in a house like this and you're never allowed to fail right, when you get older, it paralyzes you. Like, there'll be an opportunity. There'll be some fine girl or fine guy over there. And in church, it should be this way. It should be the fine guy seeing the fine girl, not the other way around. And you walk, we're going to walk over, and you're going to go talk to her and say, hey, how you doing, girl? And you know, what's your name? You a Christian? Can I get your number? I'm going to call you, not text you. I'm going to set up a date. I'm going to pay. I'm going to pick you up. Do all those things. So you need to write that down. I just set, set in motion something for you. <laughs> you won't do it because you don't want to fail. You know, you don't want to step out. Some of you have an opportunity to, to, to push for a job that maybe, maybe you've been dreaming about getting, but you won't step out because you don't, you don't want to fail. And the truth is, the reason you don't want to fail is because every time you failed in your life previously, you would be disapproved by other people. What they don't tell you is the greatest successes in life are the ones that fail most. They're the ones who consistently set out and go, I don't care how many times that I fail, I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to succeed. You won't fail. Another thing is you preempt another's disapproval by keeping a safe distance from them. You get so hurt. Here's what you say. This often happens with, with, with kids and parents. Is you say, I don't want their love anyways. That's a lie, just, just so you know. I don't, I don't need it. I don't need them to prove of me. That's, that's, that's their disapproval coming in life, and you're going, I'm not even going to get close to it. I'm not even going to allow them. And what happens is it affects every area and every relationship of your life in the future. It affects you with your kids. It affects you with your wife or your husband. It affects you with your coworkers. It affects everything. You are not going to allow yourself to get close to anyone. And the last one is you just become a people pleaser and you self-sacrifice and you're codependent. You just do everything you can to make sure somebody is approving of you. Do you like me? Do you see me? Do you approve of me? Even to the point where you'll push away your own feelings because you want people to approve of you. And here's the thing about it. It's Satan's distortion in our lives to get us to believe that how people treat us says something about who we are. Can I, can I make sure you understand this? It is one of Satan's greatest ploys to get us to believe that how people treat us, how our parents or our loved ones or our friends or our bosses or, 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 or our classmates or whoever, how they treat you is not about them. It's really about you. It says more about who you are 
than, than who they are. You see, I want you to get to the point where you understand that what others do oftentimes is not about you. Jesus knew this. He, he knew this well. He, he told his followers in Luke 6, 45, he says, a good person, watch this, produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. But an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil part. What you say flows from what is in your heart. What does he say? He says, oftentimes people are responding to us not based on what we're doing, but based on what they're struggling with. You know, angry people, they often take it out on on you. We've all done this to our kids. There's times that I come home and I'm angry at something and my kids are closest to me. And so what do I do? They're the easiest target. You do this to your wife, you do this at work, you do this everywhere you go. One of the things you need to understand, and sometimes I've, I've, I've not understood this, is oftentimes the way people treat you has nothing to do with you. You ever stand and hold the door for somebody, they walk right by? You're like, you're welcome. You don't say that, that's not Christian, but that's what you think, right? You think, what's wrong with them? Nothing with you. You ever go into a co-worker's office and speak to them and they're mad and mean to you and they're angry with you? You're like, what did I do to you? Nothing. See, the truth is, oftentimes the way people treat us has nothing to do with us. So some of you have been disapproved by a loved one and you go, what's wrong with me? And the truth is, nothing's wrong with you. Something is wrong with them and you can never fix it. If they're angry, it's oftentimes something in the past. If they're bitter, it's oftentimes something from the past. If they're resentful, oftentimes something from the past. If they deal with unforgiveness, oftentimes it's something from the past. And Jesus knew that a person's behavior had nothing to do with him, nor did it say anything about who he was. So you can struggle the rest of your life with what somebody said about you. And the truth is, the the reason they said about you probably had nothing to do with you in the first place. Number two, and this is the response I think a lot of us take when we get past this. We're like, I'm not going to let them do that. The second thing we do, which is just as toxic, is we, sh- we can strive to prove them wrong. We can struggle with what they said, or we can strive to prove them wrong. And this is the option that I enjoy taking the most. I love my haters. I love to think about people who told me I can't do it. Anybody else? I love to eat that up, man. Fill my muscle, my spiritual muscle. I, I love when something works, when somebody tells me it can't be done. I love when they got to watch it. I love that part. I love to read stuff about haters. I, love, I have quotes all over the place about haters, right? I, I put some of my favorite ones on, on, in my notes. I, I, I love this one. It says, learn to use your criticism as fuel and you will never run out of energy. Woo! <laughs> some people have so little going on in their own lives that they would rather discuss yours. I like that. Your life is so boring, you got to talk about mine because I'm actually doing something, right? Remember, people only rain on your parade because they're jealous of your son and tired of their shade. Come on now. Haters are my favorite. I built an empire with the bricks they've thrown at me. Keep on hating, says wrestler CM Punk. (laughs) Wish all your enemies a long life so they can see you succeed in life. Remember, people who try to bring down others are oftentimes already below you. Here's the thing about it. I love all these things. But just because they make me happy doesn't mean it makes me healthy. I mean, let me just give you an example. I like McDonald's. I'm not ashamed to admit it. My cousin, 
He talks often about it. He eats generally healthy, but after, after walking to church night every month, he's, he, McDonald's is right beside Royersford. He's like, I'm going to get a Big Mac. I don't care. I'm eating a Big Mac. I'm getting a fry, and I'm eating a Diet Coke, drinking a Diet Coke to balance it out, right? And so I'm going there, and he starts talking about it. When he starts talking about it, I start thinking, man, maybe I should, should get it, but I got my whole family with me at that point. And so we didn't go to McDonald's, I'm happy to say, until the next night. It was a Wednesday night. I got back from Tudor, and it was kind of late. We needed to go get pajamas for pajama day because it was Dr. Seuss. That's another story. And so we had to go get new pajamas because my kids don't really wear pajamas too much, but they needed them for that day. And so we had to waste money on school. And so we went there. And as we're going there, McDonald's right beside. We're like, we want to go to McDonald's? And I got a Big Mac. I got a French fry. I didn't get a Diet Coke. I got a root beer. And it made me happy. But I can guarantee you, it did not make me more healthy. And there's things in our lives when it comes to, to our haters or we strive to prove them wrong that initially, I think, makes us happy. But you need to understand, along with, along with struggling to, to disprove somebody wrong, there's no freedom in this step either. There's no freedom in, in, in trying to prove somebody wrong. In fact, Scripture says in Philippians 4, the exact opposite. It doesn't say, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever you hate, Think about proving them wrong. Watch what it says. Whatever is true. So what they say about you, is it true? Nope. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what should you do? Think about those things. You see, let me show you what happens when you use your haters as your motivators. Here's what you really are doing. You're saying, I still care a whole lot about what people say and what they don't like about me. I, I still care. I still, I still care about their opinion. I still care about what they said. And here's the thing that I've learned in my life. There is no level of success that can silence the voice of disapproval in your life. Think about it. There's, there's people that we know that they are so successful, yet they are so, they are so unhappy still. And here's why. Because they still hear the voice of disapproval for a parent or a loved one. You look at them and you have all the success in the world. Why are you shooting up pain pills? And why are you doing drugs? And why can't you stay married? And the truth is, is there is not a level of success that you get to where you go, you know what? I have proved my haters wrong. You see, the only thing more frustrating than haters in our lives is when we are foolish enough to continue to listen to them. So you can struggle or you can strive. But let me give you the, the, the step that I think is going to help you so much today. Number three, as we close, is you can settle in the approval of God. You can struggle, you can strive to prove them wrong, or you can settle in the approval of God. I want you to hear this. You are not designed to know yourself through other people. You are not designed to know yourself through the opinions and validation of other people. You see, something changed in David's life at this point. While David was keeping his eyes on the sheep, he realized that there was a God who was keeping his eyes on him. And he comes to, to David, Samuel does, and he anoints this unknown young boy who nobody expected to be, to be king. You, you, you remember this part. And the Bible says that he doesn't get anointed and go with him and become king. He spends 20 years almost between the time when he gets anointed and when he actually becomes king. 
becomes king. And so it's an incredible moment, but for the rest of his life, even though his brothers hated him, even though other people were against him, even though people judged him, all the things that went on, even though people wanted to stop him, the Bible says that he continued to, to walk in his anointing. Something changed in his life at that point. He knew that he was not designed to be known by other people, but to be known by God. And I think there's something so significant in that moment. You see, while others see and judge what's on the outside, we are created and given a plan by a God who sees what other men can't see. And here's what's cool. Was there before any man was ever there. He sees what other people can't see. And he knew you longer than anybody can possibly know you. You know how I know this is true? Because this same David, he pens uh, a song in the book of Psalms. The Bible says Psalms 139. It's some of the most profound words in Scripture. If you feel uh, like a mistake, if you feel lonely, if you feel helpless, if you feel like nobody cares about you, if you feel like, like nobody's eyes have ever been on you, I think you can relate to David. Because up to that point, he was a Catan. He was the run. He was a nobody. Even his dad thought, man, you're, you're just nothing. And here comes God. Samuel anoints him. He's going to be the next king. And I think it's on this foundation that he pens, I, I think, one of the most profound found songs in the book of Psalms. Psalms 139, he says this. He says, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you will lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I know you don't have this in your notes, but I just want to read you a little more. You just listen to my words. In verse 13, he says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You, you, you had your eyes on me before anybody else could even see me. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body all the days. I love this verse. All my days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them all. And that's how he describes it. He says, he says, where I had to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Somehow, when everybody's eyes were off of me, God, your eyes were still on me. And God, I'm not going to live from the disapproval of my dad. And I'm not going to strive to prove him right. God, I'm going to settle in. You know what happens in this moment? He finds peace from believing others' lies. And he finds rest from his efforts to prove them wrong. He finds peace in his heart that he doesn't need to believe their lies anymore about him. And he finds rest in his spirit that he doesn't have to prove. He's going to settle in who God has called and created him to be. See, the, the world looks at different things. But they don't get to define you because they didn't make you. They can never see what God has put inside of you because he was seeing you long before anybody else's eyes ever saw you. Before, even in our modern time, before the doctor even brought that thing down your mother's belly, it was woof, 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 woof. Remember that, man? You're like, it's a heartbeat. You're like, what? I don't know what that, okay. 
before they ever show you a picture, say, look at that little, that little peanut forming in there, that whatever it is, before any of that happened, before your parents even got together. It's kind of a bad illustration right there. Before any of those things happened, God was thinking about you. God had a purpose and a plan for your life. God wants to do more with your life than anybody has ever even dreamed that he could do with, with your life. But you need to settle into your identity in him. The Bible calls it being found and secured in Christ as a son or daughter of the Most High. I'm going to settle in. I'm going to settle into being loved and cherished and found by the one who created me. Would you stand with me?